The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. You've received your confirmation, Commander. Now we'd like to be on our way with the prisoner. You know, Mr. Tundro, I kept wondering why you tried to kidnap Lieutenant Dax rather than just present your warrant to me in the proper way. I couldn't figure that out at first. I trust you have figured out, Commander, that our extradition treaty with your Federation is current and valid. This station is technically Bajoran. What does that mean to us? You don't have an extradition treaty with Bajor. I think that's why you tried to abduct Lieutenant Dax. You were afraid the Bajorans would refuse extradition. That's absurd. No Bajoran interests are even involved here. I'm afraid Bajoran interests are involved. And Bajor is adamant that... At least I believe it's adamant. Oh, oh yes. You see, there will have to be an extradition hearing before I can lawfully release Lieutenant Dax. London. It is Thursday, January 28, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Bond. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show today, where 519-661-3600 is always a number you can call to leave us your comments and opinions and express what you have to say to us. You can also email us at justwritechrw at gmail.com, visit our website at chrwradio.com, or our archive site at www.justwritemedia.org. And today we do have a special show for you, and it's certainly a special one for me. It's going to be a bit of, uh, I guess the way I would title this is The Prince of Pot Meets the Principle of Pot. And if you're wondering what that means, we have on the line from Vancouver a good friend of mine who I have not spoken to in many, many a year. Mark Emery, are you there? Oh, I'm there. Hi, Mark. <laughs> How are you, Mark? Oh, feeling good, feeling good, except I could be extradited at any moment. We were just um, talking. We were just talking about what might happen if that would occur while you were on the air speaking to us. <laughs> I want to make sure I get a chance to speak to the officer in charge, if I could, eh? If that happens. <laughs> hey, do you remember the last time we talked and we're actually with each other? What was that? It was actually. Uh, it had to be seven years ago. I oh think my that's God! That's what Paul figured out. That's how time flies. And it was the day you were in our office and uh, Ernie Eves called the election that day that we put 130,000 pieces of literature in the uh, National Post. Do you remember that? Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's right. And uh, before we carry on, Mark, got to introduce our other guest. In the studio joining us is Paul McKeever, uh, producer of The Principle of Pot, a 100-minute biography and documentary released on YouTube about 10 days ago. Good morning, Paul. Morning, Bob. Morning, Robert. And, morning, uh, Paul. And morning, Mark. Paul. Paul, of course, most people also know you as the leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario. You're a lawyer up in working in the Oshawa area. Right. And um, you've never met Mark Emery personally, have you? No, I've not. I've spoken with him on the phone a couple of times, but I've never met him face-to-face. And yet last week on Monday you released on YouTube, and you can see this at youtube.com slash McKeever M-C-K-E-E-V-E-R. That's right. Right. Uh, it's actually a 100-minute biography on YouTube, and it's called The Principle of Pod. It's about Mark Emery. Whatever compelled you to even 
start something like that, given that you've never met the man? And, uh, well, I think Mark Emery is one of Canada's uh, most important uh, topics right now, as is the issue that he's advocating, which is uh, uh, the legalization of uh, marijuana. Uh, but in particular, I was completely moved by discovering that although the United States was willing to uh, allow Mark to set, uh, spend his entire sentence in Canada, uh, the Conservative government of Canada would not agree to that. Uh, so this meant that, in fact, there was a huge sovereignty issue as well as a legalization issue. And I think also because Mark was so important uh, to Freedom Party, there was, you know, I can honestly say there were several sleepless nights when I thought, Paul, if you don't do something here, you're committing a crime. As leader of this party, with the ability to make a movie, with access to the records, Mark's story needs to be told and the world needs to know that unlike what some people would have you think, that he's some kind of profit-motivated drug dealer. He's actually a person of intense uh, emotion about individual freedom and, and in a broad sense. And this is just one of the many issues he's worked upon in his entire history. Mark, you've seen the video? Yeah, they're wonderful. Just terrific. And uh, fortunately, they're popular, too. About 3,500 people have seen wow. the first part of Part 1 which is in four parts on YouTube right now. And there's more to come, I believe, too. A part two is coming soon. Well, I, re I remember when Paul started, I think it was intended to be, uh, you know, a 20-minute project. <laughs> Maybe we'd summarize it, oh, get it in 40 minutes. And every time he talked to me, it became a longer and longer project that just couldn't ignore so many of, of the things in it. But just before we get into the specifics, um, did you have anything, was there anything in there that you didn't feel comfortable with or that you didn't agree with or that you thought maybe requires more uh, <laughs> I, you're I, laughing I thought, I thought it was well it was brilliantly put together and it was been painstakingly put together but when you say did I feel uncomfortable well I sometimes felt uncomfortable only when I hear uh, the raw language used uh, to you know basically countenance some kind of uh, revolution uh, I, whenever I see the original movie I did by that was done by Chris Doty called uh, Mark Emery messing up the system yes so, some of my more extreme uh, speeches make me kind of uh, look back as though I was a much younger person saying much more volatile things than I would say now. But it's just mostly the approach. Now I say the same thing essentially, but try and word it in a smoother way or in a more uh, mainstream kind of way. And I think that's how all older people feel about their work they did as a younger man. But I, I like the, the the experience a lot of watching that old videotape and of looking at someone put it together in a chronological history. That's really nicely done uh, for both me to go back to memory lane, but for a lot of young people to see what the original principles of my activism were in the 1980s, so clearly articulated. Because back then, I was a much more, uh, more sharply giving objectivism the credit for where my thinking was coming from. It was, it was clear I was referring to my roots a lot in my speeches. Uh, the Ayn Rand comes out very clearly. The, uh, the, the, the real uh, radicalism of what I thought uh, is really apparent there in a nice clear way so that young people can see where the philosophy comes from its origins and how they can apply that to what I'm advocating today. So to me, it's a really helpful thing to be out there, uh, my sort of political biography on videotape, especially prior to the YouTube era. A lot of people think all this became possible like in 2006 when YouTube became an entity that was viable. But, you know, you look back to this 
pre-YouTube, even pre-internet videotape footage. And uh, it makes me grateful that someone is archiving it, because otherwise it'd probably be lost. That, that was Bob, Mark. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was my job, remember? That's what you used to pay me for. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, before we carry on, let's take an early break, just for a minute here, so people can hear what the beginning of this um, show sounds like. And uh, what you'll also be hearing on the other side of the bumper here is just a quick 30-second um, clip from A-Channel here in London that was about you, Mark, uh, and your extradition fight, although they, you weren't actually quoted in it. But uh, we'll just take this break for a minute to listen to this, and we'll carry on the conversation on the other side of this. He is a Canadian. The United States has sought his extradition to the U.S. for violating the laws of that country. While standing on Canadian soil. The crime for which he is charged is punishable by the death penalty or life imprisonment in the U.S. It is a crime typically punished by a fine of not more than $200 in Canada. Who is this Canadian? Why does the USA want him in a cage? Why have liberal and conservative governments in Canada done nothing to prevent his extradition or punishment? Should you care? And if so, what side should you be on? activist and former London resident Mark Emery is giving up his fight against being extradited to the United States. Emery, who used to operate City Lights in London, was busted back in 2005 for selling pot seats to customers in the States after his Vancouver mail order business was raided. He says he'll plead guilty to one charge of drug distribution in a Seattle courtroom next month. It's believed Emery's lawyer has agreed to deal with a U.S. district attorney that would see Emery serve up to eight years. Now, in exchange, two more serious charges would be dropped. HRW 94.9 FM, where we are joined in studio by Paul McKeever, producer of an online video called The Principle of Pot, and by someone known as the Prince of Pot, Mark Emery, live from Vancouver. Hello, Mark. Hi there. Now, Mark, um, so tell us the story. How come you're not in jail? I think a lot of people thought you were already in jail, and um, we certainly have been reporting on your progress in the past on this show. And every time I tell people, oh, yeah, Mark's on his way to extradition, turns out you're not. <laughs> What's going on? Well, you're correct, uh, actually. I, I was in jail from September 28th to November 18th, 52 days, in maximum security here at uh, North Fraser Remand. And only because of an, an extraordinary fluke am I actually out now. And what happened is when I uh, turned myself into custody on September 28th, all that remained was for my lawyer to file a few um, formalities in paperwork. And yet my lawyer got stricken with a, a really bad illness called pleurisy, nearly died and went to hospital and was put on a respirator for a couple of months and was unable to do any of his work, including filing the, the paperwork on my behalf, which was, like I said, mostly a formality. And uh, because he was ill for so long and it would appear that no decision would be taken by the minister until January or February. Uh, I requested bail, and I got it, and was out in uh, November 18th, and I've been out ever since, which is uh, a bonus to me, because I didn't think I'd be 
missing Canada for you know years uh, because the idea was I'd be in custody for 30 days and then turned over to American authorities once the justice minister has signed these the extradition order and because they've never refused the Americans an extradition request it's not expected that the government's going to turn down this extradition request but now the minister's actually had it on his desk all completed and ready to go for about three weeks now and hasn't signed the extradition notice and I will say this, there have been over 30,000 calls, letters, uh, emails uh, sent to the Justice Minister by Canadians uh, on my behalf requesting that he not extradite me. He could, of course, refuse to do so on many grounds, not the least of which is that it's unjust, uh, and therefore I wouldn't be extradited to the United States. But because it's never happened in recent memory, uh, it's not expected to be to go like that, but it's quite possible the justice minister could refuse to extradite me, and I would be allowed to remain in Canada. But I would expect that in the next few days, with as little as 12 hours' notice, I can be uh, sent over to U.S. authorities, and a five-year sentence that I have agreed to serve uh, would begin to take place, and I would be in the U.S. Uh, prison system. Merrick, it's Robert here. Um, with the time you spent in remand, would that go uh, credit towards your time that they say that you're going to be spending in the States? Yeah, it does. In fact, a five-year sentence, the earliest I could get out uh, under the American uh, penal regime would be four years and three months, less the two months I've served, so I I'd have four years and one month to go. And uh, Now, what I would hope is that Canada and the United States have a treaty and that I would be transferred back to Canada under the treaty, and then my sentencing would be in Canadian uh, sentencing principles, and therefore I could get out after a year and a half to two years on day parole or full parole. So ultimately, if people put a lot of pressure on my behalf, I, I could be returned to Canada you know, probably fairly quickly, a year, year and a half, and then out much sooner than the four, than the four and a half years, right. five years. You, you sowed, sowed seeds all over the world. Did you ever foresee that the United States or any other country would ask Canada to arrest you on their behalf? Did you foresee that? Because I know you were fighting to change the laws here in Canada. Did you ever see the, another, another country trying to come, to come in here and arrest you for selling seeds over the border? Oh, it didn't seem inconceivable because, uh, first of all, I knew the Americans were very aggressive. Secondly, that's the source and origin of the drug war, and that's where the battle really needed to be taken. Of the $4 million, see, the idea with this one was always a fundraiser. Bob would be aware of that. I was always thinking of the ultimate fundraiser. One of the difficult things about running Freedom Party with Bob is that it was very trying to ask people to give, donate money. Oh, can you give us 25 bucks? Can you give us $50? Can you give us $10? And it's this constant asking for money I thought was very unproductive because I said, you know, people don't like to be beggars. That was me. And people don't like to be asked in a begging manner. That's everybody else. And I thought, you know, it'd be great if we could sell them something sell them something so that they would buy it as a product and buy it repeatedly, hopefully. And then we could, you know, sell enough of that product to make money in such a volume as to finance and, and underwrite a, a sort of a revolution. And uh, that's what happened when I came up with this idea of selling seeds, because we were able to generate uh, about $15 million in sales over a 10-year period, and we were able to give away $4 million. And, and it was a great scheme, because one of the things I was operating under is that I may not have the right idea about how to achieve freedom, but if I gave out a lot of money to a variety of different groups operating with a number of different premises, would they be able to achieve freedom? And, and with that money, would they be able to come up with an idea or a method that would be so overwhelmingly winning that it would set as a good example for others? And I thought well, that way we 
can have this money out there doing all these different things. So I sponsored ballot initiatives to legalize marijuana in uh, Arizona, Colorado, Washington, D.C., Alaska, went to Supreme Court cases and challenges in both the United States and Canada to challenge the constitutionality of these laws. We were giving money to political parties, political figures, uh, rallies all around the world. I mean, half a million dollars a year. And that was the whole idea. The whole idea of me selling seeds was not so I could make money, but so with the movement itself could raise a lot of money to finance a rebellion of sorts. And it was very effective because, uh, uh, you know, from 1995 to 2005, we did give away $4 million and achieved a huge amount of different projects all over the world that became very effective and, and you, continue to this day in many cases. You have a, a great friend down there as well with Tommy Chong uh, of the Cheech and Chong fame going on uh, national television, for example, Bill O'Reilly show on Fox, and wearing a free Merck shirt on almost every interview that I've seen him on. You finding a groundswell of support from the states coming your way? We'll be hearing a clip from that a little later, by the way. Oh, good. Yeah, Tommy Chong, who's a Canadian, by the way. Yes. Um, actually, a dual citizen now, of course. Um, has been incredibly helpful. He wore that uh, free Mark T-shirt, of which we sold over a thousand so far. He wore that T-shirt on Jimmy Fallon for ten minutes, and he made a real yeah. obvious show of making sure it didn't get obscured, and it was really obvious what he was saying with that T-shirt because he made a point of making sure everybody could see it so clearly. And then he was on. Uh, CNBC, and most recently he's been on another network television show. So he's been very, very supportive. And it, why, it, why do you why do you think the hosts of those shows don't bring up the T-shirt? I'm sitting, yes. I was sitting there watching. I'm thinking this guy's sitting across from me with this weird T-shirt, and I'm not going to mention it. And we're talking about that issue. How? Why do you think they're avoiding that? Well, I, I think those shows are highly scripted. Uh, and because they're a timed show, and, uh, and Jimmy, on Jimmy Fallon's show, it is odd. He was on for 10 minutes, and he didn't mention it all. Although I will say part of that was for a musical number with Cheech Marin. So, and also because <laughs> it's scripted, he can't afford to bring up a subject that might veer 30 to 60 seconds off topic because they have a, a sort of series of things they want to get done in those uh, kind of uh, late-night talk shows. But you're right. It would have occurred to me that at the end, you would have wondered, who's Mark Emery, and what's he doing on your chest there? <laughs> uh, it would seem like an obvious question for both the audience and the host, and yet they didn't bring it up. So, uh, But we did, uh, you could see the effect on our website, though, because for the next two days we had over a thousand inquiries at any given time you went to our website. Typically we have 200 to 300 participants on our website. Now that website and is freemark.ca, is it? Well, actually, cannabisculture.com is the one where we measure most things. But freemark.ca is also what you get when you put freemark into any Google engine, which is really handy. So if people watching the show, and this is what they did, saw that freemark, they would just Google freemark, and you do get all our websites. Mark with a C. Yeah, and uh, we get a huge amount of inquiries every time uh, Tommy's on the media, and he's been on about six shows so far. Or I'm featured in a, in, a, in a television documentary, which happens frequently on National Geographic Channel, or I'm on tonight on CBC at uh, 9 o'clock your time on a, in a show called Cannabis. And I actually occupy a fairly prominent spot on this documentary made by CBC in that I am the guru of all things cannabis. So uh, <laughs> you see me narrating how the, how the pot has grown, how it's smuggled all across the country and out of the country. And I did it over a year ago, so I had forgotten it was even due to be on television until I saw CBC promoting me on the network last night. And, and that's on tonight, is it? Yeah, it is, 9 o'clock. Excellent, I'll and, keep an eye uh, out for that. And then t tomorrow night as well, but uh, probably on News World. But I think it's on Channel 
channel, uh, the main CBC network tonight at 9 o'clock Eastern. And for anybody listening out here on the Pacific to what I'm saying now, it's uh, 8 o'clock here. Well, well, it's funny. You've been caught on film so much over the years, you probably don't remember even a portion of it, let alone the stuff that was in, was in, a principle, in the principle of pot, uh, which, by the way, is part one, eh, Paul? Not, that's, that's right. Part two is coming out in the next few weeks. I, I should just point out, you know, uh, the Free Mark t-shirt has really led to almost a, uh, an international cry of Free Mark Emery. If you look at the comments to the principle of pot video on YouTube, you see some of the comments say nothing other than Free, free Mark, Mark Emery. Yeah, I, was, I was wondering what that was. I thought, what the heck is that? Is that somebody's spam or oh, what yeah. happened? But people are actually writing that in on, on the comments. And um, that triggers something in the, in the Google engine? Is that what you're saying? I, I think it does. But more to the point, I think, you know, usually on a YouTube video, you see people say, oh, you know, very interesting video, what have you. Here, there's this emotional outcry, Free Mark Emery. And I think it's not only people who have always been fans, but some people who even never even heard of Mark before have been sending me emails saying, thank goodness for doing this. I've never heard of this fella. But yes, this that surprised is a, me that someone had not heard of Mark. <laughs> yeah, well, Americans, right? Americans yeah. are less in tune because, you know, they weren't living in London when Mark... Uh, sure. Mark's gotten a lot of coverage in the London area, and it spread like an atomic bomb from that, you know, center point, I think. And Ground I think, zero. Yeah, and, and it's really, I think, starting to uh, really make an impression. We've seen it, uh, Mark's uh, posters, cannabis culture posters, you know, overgrow the government in, in shows like Weeds. Uh, and th that'll all be shown in, the, in part two, which will be coming out in the next few weeks. But the impact Mark's had goes beyond even the money, the immense amount of money he's put in the program. And I think that's the one thing they cannot destroy. And it's taking on a life of its own. I was just telling Robert this morning that uh, I had said to Mark, or to, to Robert, who had said earlier on that he was willing to, you know, put the video on in, into a torrent. I said, no, no, let's just leave it on YouTube right now and monitor the hits. Well, I Googled it last night and I found the whole thing had gone viral. There are more torrents out there for the principle of pot than you can shake a stick at. <laughs> and so, so we've lost control. We've of lost it. control. Oh, it's okay. a wild beast of free Mark Emery and I think it's only going to, it's just going to snowball. And we haven't even, and has, this has only been the media advisory so far. Yep. Um, now, Mark was talking about um, Canada's federal justice minister, Rob Nicholson, getting all the mail and stuff, you know, with relating to his um, extradition. I understand you obviously targeted him as well. Oh yes, let, he received a media he received a media advisory. Uh, he's getting a complete free Mark Emery, not free Mark Emery. So you got me saying it now. <laughs> uh, Principal of Pot uh, uh, DVD collection uh, to his office, both in Ottawa mm -hmm. and in uh, Niagara Falls. Which, by the way, I would say to anybody who's uh, really wants to make an impression on Rob Nicholson, there's nothing like having pressure. Uh, having exposure among the people who vote for you, and those are in Niagara Falls, not in Ottawa. So, those are the people who would be really interested to know that their elected official is uh, sending a, a Canadian to the United States to be imprisoned for as much as five years for something that in Canada uh, he would probably walk on for a two hundred dollar fine. Uh, it's, I, it's I, I know, and it, it's having its effect too, because the only reason I'm out is because of political pressure. Otherwise, you know, if I was anybody else, the telemarketers, scammers that uh, get extradited, or certainly anybody wanted for any heinous or violent crime, there would be no hesitation. The minister would sign me away, and I would have been gone January 8th when he had the... Uh, that's the first day I'd become eligible uh, to be extradited. And, and I, you know, likely will and still can, but the fact that 30,000 Canadians in the last few months have bombarded his three offices nonstop around the clock has made an impact on him. In fact, we have a petition being presented in Parliament, it was supposed to be this month, but when they return in March, um, presented by uh, all four parties on my behalf, including a Conservative by the name of Scott Reed from uh, East Hastings Lanark 
Frontenac, I think, is the riding Scott represents. And the Liberty Davies represented by NDP, and then Ujol Desange representing the Liberals, and additionally as someone representing the Bloc, um, we'll be presenting a petition in March on my behalf not to extradite me, uh, signed by tens of thousands of Canadians, additionally, on top of the 30,000 that have called, written, and what have you. So uh, I'm, I'm actually at large because Canadians have, in fact, called the Justice Minister, because there's a political consequence to him sending me to the United States. Even if 2% of Conservatives find it disgusting enough to alter their voting behavior, that's a very powerful argument in a time when the two parties, the Liberals and the Conservatives, are competitive at the same rate of support in the public. So <laughs> well, you know, well, I, I'm at large because of the Canadian people now. Yeah, you certainly are a unique character in any scene, on any political scene, let's put it that way. And I think one thing that will surprise people if they tune in to watch The Principle of Pot Part 1, and that's what surprised me, is that it wasn't about pot. There was nothing about pot in it. I don't it. think it was mentioned once. It was it mentioned. Isn't. It was it? Not, not by you or us, just very Except incidentally. It was very, very funny. And the uh, intro, where it was uh, uh, inserted, I kept my eye. It wasn't anybody's, it was callers to an it was open a, it line was a, show. It was a random caller. <laughs> and she, she, Mark was making the point that the way to change the law is to break a law. Historically, he had done his research. And this caller called in, not even knowing he'd done the research, talking about the fact that Mark and others had, had broken the Sunday shopping law, the ban on Sunday shopping, by opening their stores. And they were asking callers what, what should be done. And she says, well, gee, we can't have people trying to change the law by breaking the laws. If, I mean, take that to its logical conclusion. You'll have people, you know, smoking marijuana at, at Parliament Hill. I mean, and they start laughing it, it and joking. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's complete foreshadowing, and it was intentional. I wanted to make sure that clip was in there because it does. In fact, I think there, there's a magical story here. Um, I don't mean that in any mystical sense, but it, there's a wonderful story here. And it will evolve, I think, in part two in particular. Um, and it, it, it's something that... You know, this movie is not only about Mark Emery's um, troubles, it's about uh, a philosophical odyssey, really, and one that he has lived out, and it's one that every other activist in the world can learn from. But I think the other thing is that uh, Rob Nicholson had better wait for the part two to come out, because if he doesn't, I can honestly say that all of the things that they've tried to avoid for the last several years, you know, the, the religious fanaticism and et cetera that haunted them in the early campaign years that made it impossible to get them elected, uh, I think that they'd be better tread carefully with Mark because uh, religion is going to figure large in part two and the conservatives are going to be part of it. I'm not attacking anybody, but I'm laying out the facts and uh, they've got big decisions to make because the implications of, of letting Mark go to the States are huge not only for Canada and, and for the freedom of Canadians, but for the future of the Conservative Party. I agree. Listen, and the future of the new new media because Paul has taken videotapes from the 80s before the internet existed and now presented them in our era when I'm on Facebook, I have 5,000 friends, I'm capped out, and I got 4,000 people waiting to become my friend on Facebook, <laughs> and so many of them have told me about the Paul's movie, The Principal of Pot, and of course, first of all, a lot of them were born after those things even took place, and which is really awesome because young people have no idea, and then they see that. But the number of people we have in English-speaking and even European non-English-speaking countries around the world is phenomenal. Who would never would have seen that videotape in any other way, unless Paul would have put it together. I've got people in Finland. I was on Finnish television two days ago in a great interview, and uh, there's a lot of oppression in Scandinavia in regards to cannabis. So there's a, an, an attentive audience there. We have many Facebook friends in Norway. 
Sweden, Finland, Russia. And now they're getting to see this videotape that was made in the 1980s. And I would have never anticipated that would have been possible, that people all over the world could so readily access it. Because remember in the days when we took that videotape, if we would have put it together, it would have been on a VHS tape or a beta tape. Oh, we had big plans. I remember we were going to make multi-tape copies and then maybe go on to... we, We couldn't possibly have guessed. But of course, uh, they'd need to be shipped around the world. They'd yep. need to spend money. They would need a, a, a way to play back on a, on a uniform player that didn't really exist in those days. So now, uh, because uh, Freedom Party's maintained those tapes, the, the access they have to a worldwide audience is greater than it could have ever been previous to now. So it actually has more impact in this era. Not only can we look back and go, wow, that was 25 years ago. That's quite something. But also the fact that somebody can sit in South Australia as a, a fan of mine who's actually, uh, there's an, a rally around the world on the second Saturday after I get extradited. And those videos really help get people really into it because they go, wow, it's not just about pot. Even they see the revelation that it's all about freedom. It's all about individual liberty. And the wonderful sequence with Ayn Rand speaking to Mike Wallace in the early part of the film was absorbing. I just was fascinated that because, believe it or not, I have never seen that sequence. So while I'm watching the film, I'm thinking I'm learning all sorts of cool things, right? I love being in the same movie as Ayn Rand. (laughs) Somehow I just feel that's so great just to be to rub elbows with her on videotape, uh, you know, in a historical sense is a wonderful thing. Well, listen, Mark, we're at the bottom of the hour. We just got to take a break for a while here. And what we're going to be hearing for the next three minutes is... Uh, an outtake from that Bill O'Reilly show with Cheech and Chong, with uh, <laughs> Tommy Chong wearing uh, that free Mark Emery T-shirt. And it's interesting, uh, the part of the conversation, you might want to speak to a couple of the issues they bring up here. And then on the other side of the break, we'll be hearing about, oh, three, four minutes from the principle of pot. And it really speaks to the key issue, your discovery of perhaps what might, might be the right road to freedom. Is it the democratic process it or, or process, or is it uh, the process of law-breaking? Because, and that actually feeds back to CHRW here, because this is a story we covered here on the station. So when we come back on the other side, don't be surprised if you hear my voice. It's not me live. It's me in this, in this film at first, and then you'll hear us a little later. But we'll be taking a break for about seven minutes now, and we'll be back with Mark Emery and Paul McKeever after this. There's a strong move in America right now to legalize marijuana. In fact, pot has been made widely available under the medical marijuana ruse. Two strong advocates for the weed are comedians Cheech and Chong, whom I spoke with a couple of days ago. We found out that in San Francisco, which leaves a league in marijuana clinics, medical marijuana clinics, a lot of hardcore drug addicts go in there, buy the pot, and sell it to kids. So they can buy their heroin and meth and everything else, which Sell isn't legal. Yeah. Now, where would you get that information? We got it from our undercover people. Ooh, and in fact, they have closed down so many marijuana clinics in San Francisco yeah. because of the problems that they've been yeah. having. So my question is to you, Cheech. Um, children, yeah. you don't want them smoking pot, do you? No, absolutely not. What I don't want age? them drinking beer either. I don't want them glugging champagne. You don't or... want them taking intoxicants. What age? No, I, I didn't say that. I, I, at, at the legal age, whether it's 18 in some states, 21 in other states, I, this is the intoxicant for our past three generations. And I think there should not be a, a law against it. Just, I mean, if we want to have a referendum, we can have a referendum, beer or weed. Well, look, beer is legal and alcoholism is tough. Ten percent of the population addicted to alcohol. But you don't want children to smoke pot, is that correct? True, true, yeah. So you don't want them to smoke pot either? No, here's the thing. You've got to remember, uh, marijuana is a proven medicine. 
The constant people at Columbia University who research uh, drugs say that marijuana is now the top addiction of American teenagers. The top addiction. Addiction? And Addiction. Physical addiction? No, mental addiction. Okay. Well, whatever it may be, I don't care what adults yeah. do. I don't care if they smoke pot. No. Don't care. Children, I think it's pernicious, it's harmful. And then you guys go out and you're funny and you make it seem like it's a lot of fun and kids see it. Have you ever thought about that? Well, I have because I have three kids and I go through the regular uh, uh, things that every parent does. I want my kids to grow up to be a useful citizen. Do you smoke pot in front of them? No. No, I know. I don't. But when they ask you, hey, Dad, you smoked a lot of pot, you say? I'll let see my movies. <laughs> you got any narcotics or marijuana in here? <laughs> uh, not anymore. <laughs> when the kid says to you, hey, why are you telling me I can't smoke pot when you do, you say what? Because uh, I'm old enough to make my own decisions. So it's an age thing. It absolutely is. I wouldn't want them to, to raid my liquor cabinet and glug down all the bourbon either. Same thing. Do you see it the same way? Actually, I, I, I see it a little different. I'd rather have my kids smoking pot than drinking. Yes, at what, at what age? age? Yeah. It's a personal thing. I, I have no idea. But do you have kids? Yes. Okay. Five. Fifteen, sixteen, and would that be okay with you? Uh, uh, not, no, not, not. Do you smoke pot every day? Almost. All right. Now, the main message to America on when you go out, yeah. Mm -hmm. What is the message of the tour? Get it legal. Change it from a Schedule One drug to a Schedule Two drug. Yeah. Prescription. Just to give you some idea of why Mark and I sort of went our separate ways and perhaps what led up to it. It was, interestingly enough, it was a project we worked together. And I'm not saying that alone was it. It was maybe a catalyst, maybe just a symbol of what was going on. But in the late 1980s, Mark began researching the history of individual freedom for a calendar project, like just a wall calendar that you put up on your wall. And it was intended to highlight bright days and dark days in the history of freedom. Mark himself spent, boy, six months researching, I mean, six months solid, eight hours a day, going to libraries, uh, phoning research institutes from around the world to get the history of individual freedom in North America. The calendar was exclusively a Mark Emery project, and the content was largely that chosen by Emery. Each month of the calendar featured a personality that Mark thought was, in some way, associated with individual freedom. Only two philosophers were featured. Ayn Rand, and Aristotle, who appeared on the January and February months of the calendar. Others included a range of economists, journalists, and politicians who Emery thought were promoting individual freedom. Peppered amongst the days of the year were events that Emery considered, quote, dark days, unquote, and highlights in the history of individual freedom. Among the dark days were such things as Canada's introduction of socialized medicine in 1946, the adoption of the 16th Amendment in the United States in 1913, which permitted the government to impose an income tax. And interestingly, the execution of Jesus by the government of Pontius Pilate. Among the highlights for the individual freedom calendar were such things as the release of Ayn Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged, the Boston Tea Party, and the very interesting case of Canadian nurse Dorothea Palmer. Palmer was charged but acquitted for distributing information about contraception. Although contraception would not be officially accepted until 30 years after Palmer's acquittal, no Canadian was ever again prosecuted for distributing information about contraception. So as he's doing his research, something very disturbing begins to surface. 
seems that almost every time a historic event moved towards freedom, it was never initiated by any democratic process, but rather by somebody breaking the law. From slavery to religious prohibitions, to sexual prohibitions, to laws on abortion, high taxes, restrictions on trade. Someone had to break the law before the law was changed. Everything that was a positive step seemed to be a law-breaking step. And so Mark decided, well, this is the answer. This is the way you change laws. And so he started devaluing the democratic process, the whole idea of doing anything politically, because he saw politics moving in total opposite direction. And that the only thing moving that he thought was towards freedom was people who were breaking laws, um, theoretically bad laws. One inescapable implication of Emery's theory that freedom could be achieved only by breaking bad laws was that the only thing standing in the way of freedom was government. In 1988, the year in which Emery was jailed, Emery prepared a 1989 calendar that replaced Aristotle and several other individuals from the 1988 calendar with a number of famous anarchists from history including Henry David Thoreau, Percy Shelley, Hosiah Warren, and Murray Rothbard. That same anti-government libertarian sentiment influenced the sorts of things that Emery added to the 1989 calendar's list of highlights and dark days. Among the highlights were such things as the birth of anarchists Lysander Spooner and Herbert Spencer. Among the dark days were such things as the United States having prevented anarchists from entering the country. Indeed, Emery's growing anti-government belief and the need to break oppressive laws colored his characterization of people mentioned in the calendar. The 1988 calendar's entry for Good Friday read, quote, Jesus Christ executed in Jerusalem by Pontius Pilate government, unquote. In Emory's 1989 calendar, that wording was changed to, quote, Jesus of Nazareth executed by Pontius Pilate government for dissent, unorthodox views, and refusal to be loyal to local religious and political doctrines, unquote. And uh, you're, we're back. I guess that clip got cut short for some reason. <laughs> uh, but in any, any case, we're, you're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM and 519-661-3600, number to call. And you can email us at justwritechrw at gmail.com. Uh, one of the things that's missing there... Oh, and by the way, you're joined in studio with Paul McKeever, who has produced what you just heard um, uh, a clip from, The Principle of Pot, Part 1, which is available on YouTube. And on the line with us from Vancouver is The Prince of Pot, Mark Emery. You still there, Mark? They, oh, yes. They haven't Enjoyed taken you away yet. Yeah, and that, <laughs> see, I realized when I was watching that videotape that that's, in fact, the genesis of my current strategy, that doing that calendar... And eventually I started researching... Uh, organizations and movements that had succeeded too, um, like the IRA, the feminist movement. So from violent movements like the Irish Republican uh, Army uh, campaign, uh, the feminist campaign, the homosexual campaign for acceptance. And, you know, what I did learn, fortunately, was that violent revolutions don't achieve anything worthwhile that lasts because they establish violence as a means of change and unfortunately you start something going there that you can't stop and that typically is what happens is violence does beget violence and statism begets more statism um, whenever we go to the government for the answer to our problem we get more government which invariably grins us more problems so I was really both flustered frustrated with this, the, the system but also the ability to raise money um, I, I, I was thinking we needed millions and millions of dollars and we needed it rapidly to be invested in an activist approach to politics where where basically uh, where we had a dual threat 
If you don't change the rules democratically through the democratic system, then we'll change it by sheer revolutionary pressure of having millions of people agitate. Well, Mark, so it, it was a double-pronged assault on the system, as it were. Well, that's the reason you're going to jail, isn't it? Ultimately, it's because yeah. of the strategy that you're applying, not because you sold seeds, not because of anything to do with pot, but because you're a successful activist. Well, isn't that, isn't, isn't that absolutely unequivocal here? Paul, you know that's what to be a case. I think it becomes more and more uh, obvious as the movie will go on in part two that it's the fact that Mark... I think that, in fact, the police know much more about Mark's history than many of the um, people... Well, I think that what people are learning from this movie right now is what probably the DEA and the other American authorities have known for many years about Mark, and that is that he's not just some pot dealer, not some seed... Well, he doesn't deal pot anyway, he sells seeds, but he's not just some seed dealer. There's lots of those. None of them get arrested. The police don't come up and get them from the United States. Uh, they know that Mark's uh, more of a mastermind and that he's got a much bigger plan here. And in fact, there is going to be some, uh, I think, shocking revelations in, in part two that d directly address that point that even the DEA, even the drug czar in the United States, I think knew that this was not about marijuana at all and that his arrest isn't about marijuana. Rather, it's about the fact that he has discovered something that they don't want to get out. Well, DEA released that the day I was arrested, too, fortunately. They, they tried to withdraw it, but it was too late, and it's still it's out there, and we have original copies of the document, where the head of DEA, Karen Tenney, cites on five occasions on the day of my arrest that it's all about my money to legalization groups. It's all about my advocacy. They even refer to my magazine, Cannabis Culture Magazine, as a propagandist magazine, which coming the government accusing a privately held magazine with a circulation of 60,000 as, as a propagandist magazine is really quite an outrageous statement, too, and it shows it's all about ideology, because the statements by Karen Tendy, and you, anybody can research that on Google, just put Karen Tendy, Prince of Potter, Karen Tendy, Mark Emery, and you'll get the statement issued by DEA that says it's all about my legalization efforts, and there's no mention of any victims of my activity, because of course there aren't any victims of my activity. And so they focus on my ideology, and of course in doing so they focus on their ideology, and it becomes very apparent to people. One of the most shocking things about this, though, is that the Canadian government gave up on charging me at, in, in November 2002 and for the next two and a half years worked with the American government to try and build up a case against me through the American judicial system. In other words, Canada outsources justice system to the U.S. deliberately and willfully years before I was finally extradited. That was the plan of, and under the Liberal government, under a human rights activist as Justice Minister named Erwin Kotler. So uh, a ter terrible betrayal there uh, that the Liberals, uh, with a so-called human rights activist, worked for two and a half years to basically build up a case for the Americans to have me extradited, even though they could have either charged me here or simply given me a cease and desist notice um, and, and would have stopped whatever it is they were critiquing my seed distribution. Right. But they actually involve themselves with the Americans in this uh, collusion, and there's over six and a half thousand pages and documents by Canadian officials with American officials in exchanging information and strategy and planning to arrest me. Uh, and we've put in a freedom of information request for those 6,000 pages, and we got a sample 60 pages back of the 6,000. We were able to get all 6,000 if we wanted, and every single page is redacted. It's all blacked out <laughs> because apparently it's under national security, we have no right to find out what information they were exchanging with the Americans and what they were seeking in, you know, with them and what have you. So that remains my great 
challenge is to get those 6,000 pages from the Canadian government somehow uh, in an uncensored manner so we can see how they actively colluded with the U.S. to have me sent abroad rather than have me charged in Canada. Mark, you know, I have a, I'm going to give you a bit of a spoiler from part two because I think it's important with respect to that press release that the DEA put out. In, it's been covered in, in, I think, the movie The Prince of Pot, the documentary about uh, your marijuana activism, that this media release said certain things that disclose a political um, angle. What I find, find fascinating is what it didn't say. If Where it's describing who Mark Emery is, it says, Mark Emery, activist and publisher. It doesn't say seed seller or marijuana activists or marijuana seller or anything relating to drugs. It just says activist and publisher. It makes pretty clear what they're attacking. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's when they let slip what it was really all about. Right. Of course, Karen Tandy regretted that because the media immediately asked her questions like that. It seems like you're attacking his work in a political sphere and almost nothing to do with his so-called drug dealing, which was the, the superficial accusation. And by the way, they also put uh, Mark Emery, a.k.a. the Prince of Pot, on the extradition request, too. So they kind of formalized that name that's been given to me um, by the media, which was first popularized by CNN yeah. in 1997 when they did a worldwide broadcast uh, visiting me here in Canada. It was called CNN Visits Canada's Prince of Pot. And they have popularized that term so that all media use that term freely now. And, uh, yeah, well, I, Paul, it's a great, great video, and I'm really pleased that 3,500 people have seen it in the last week. And I, and I hope uh, you enjoy doing it because I'm sure there's no money in it. And Zero. yet at the same time, <laughs> it opened my own eyes to my own philosophy and was able to construct my evolution in a way I hadn't really thought about before. That calendar, I did it. Bob would certainly be able to tell you many vignettes and anecdotes about me working a photocopier beside him <laughs> up in that office. Hey, Mark, Mark, we were laughing during the break. Do you remember that morning you printed about 200 of them? And Lloyd Walker walked in, and he saw the calendar sitting there, and he says, uh, do you know how to spell calendar? Uh, boy, why ever? Calendar. It's one of the most unusual words, D-A-R instead of D-E-R. You wonder why D-A-R. And there, course, there, you, there you were. You had printed up hundreds, and I was feeling so sorry for you. You were just pulling all those calendars apart and had to reprint the cover again and put them all back together again. Yeah, it's amazing what you can do with an old photocopy in that day and age, though. <laughs> and they're beautiful things, too. Apparently, only one copy exists of the 1988. and uh, But those are both beautiful calendars. I really, really love those calendars. and I Actually, really I, I do have a couple copies still left. I got them on plastic bags wrapped away somewhere. But they are definite collector's items, that's for sure. The other, the other thing is, and not a lot of people know this, that not only were those things beautiful and, and informative, but Mark got rave reviews from extremely high-profile people, including uh, uh, top economist Milton Friedman, and, and I'm, I, I hope I can fit this into the second part, wrote personal letters back to Mark and to Freedom Party saying, this is a wonderful thing, I'm so honored that you've included Walter me. Walter Williams. Walter Williams. Many, many top authorities, these are Americans uh, in particular, I think that any American who's proud of the, the heritage they have, the intellectual heritage they have, uh, should know that these are individuals who thought very highly of Mark Emery, and I and intend to make sure... It's too bad point. that it hasn't been pursued by other people. Nowadays, we live in the Internet era. It's funny, I wonder if many people can remember what it was like before the Internet era, because all that material you've accumulated, Paul, was done in that pre-Internet era, and at the same time, you know, 
it would be wonderful to have a calendar out like that nowadays, and I'm sure it can be much more easily done, and the information more readily obtained, and it can be printed much more efficiently than I printed it, and yet I haven't seen one in 20 years, and it's such a crying need. A calendar of individual liberty or individual freedom would be a wonderful thing to come out year after year. Now, Mark, we're just going to take a break for a minute, just for a smile, and then I've got a question for you after this break about um, this whole extradition situation and, and why I'm speculating a little bit that, you know, I've got, I got, I got my hopes up here, that maybe they're not going to send you south of the border. But we'll just take a break for a minute here, and we'll be right back. So this Ross Rebliati guy, eh? they wanted to take away his gold medal, our snowboater. You know what I'm talking about here wanted to take away his medal because he had 17 nanograms of pot in his system. You're only allowed 15. <laughs> That's what kills me. You're allowed some. It's, a, it's like it's a, a special rule they brought in for the Jamaican bobsled team. Have you ever been driving on the highway and you smoke a joint and you want to switch lanes? You know, so you put your you put your indicator on, check your rear view, check your blind spot, then forget to move over. Not all students. What's that clicking noise? <laughs> and welcome back. <laughs> S- sounds That's familiar. funny stuff, Bob. Who is that? Um, I think that was a fellow named uh, Chris Quigley. Chris Quigley, yeah. And he's done some pretty funny stuff on, on, on even just smoking and, and other... You know, oh, I'm going to look, look him up. That uh, sounded clever. Yeah, that's pretty funny stuff. Um, you know, I was speculating on a previous uh, broadcast of this show when I was talking about you um, that I couldn't see it being in the interest of the conservative government or Harper or anyone to extradite a person like you because of the of the total difference in the seriousness with which Canada regards your your quote-unquote crime in America um, it's almost like giving up our legal jurisdiction who could the United States not come up here and get like am I next just because uh, I'm an activist and maybe this movie is gonna make things successful for me do I, do I have to wait for the DEA to come you know what I'm saying? Oh, for sure. Well, and of course, when you contrast that with my contemporaries who also sell seeds, and for that matter, just kept all the money themselves, and, and many of them live quite affluent lives in Canada now. These people have been selling seeds for 10 years. And I'm not sure they're paying their taxes on it either. I mean, I declared all the income I made, so that's why I face no charges in Canada. <laughs> We've been compliant with the income tax, compliant with all the rules and regulations. I used to have meetings with the income tax officials, three or four of them, sitting in a room <laughs> once, every, once every two months, and they would have all my bank accounts in front of them and they'd be saying mark we see that business is good can you raise your payments from twelve thousand a month to fifteen thousand a month because we see you're doing a lot of volume so the irony is the government's own agents were working with me to try and maximize their amount of profit they were taking out of my business and totally 
glad and happy. I remember when I was put on bail and I could no longer sell seeds, and that means the income tax people weren't getting any more money. They said, well, when are you going to get those bail conditions reversed <laughs> so you can give us more money again? And I said, well, it doesn't look like I'm going to be able to. And they said, well, that's terrible. And, and, and I said, well, yeah, I would agree. And they said, well, is there anything we can do to help make the case so that you can go back to business again so we can get more money. <laughs> so on one hand, the government's condemning me. On the other hand, their financial agency is working with me, desperately trying to make it so they could get money back in and hoping I would be back in business. They were constantly asking, when are you going to get back in business? Well, didn't you also have departments of the government buying your pot <laughs> seeds from you, uh, where they were supposedly legal, legally growing it, if you know what I mean? Well, Health Canada actually referred people to order their seeds from me because the government's <laughs> own medical marijuana program allowed people to grow marijuana but didn't provide any access for them to start off what they were growing. So they had no choice but to recommend people contact me. Now, that was corroborated by a guy named Sven Robinson, who is the NDP health critic in Parliament, and he told me, and he was willing to go to court for this and signed affidavits, saying that that's what they told him people should do, is contact Mark Emery on the Internet and order seeds from him. Mark, this so the government, on, on one hand, was recommending people do business with me. Mark, this whole story is not only just tragic, but it's comedic as well. And I, I saw on reality TV that you said you sold the rights to your life story. What about that? Uh, it's two thousand dollars. Yeah. Well, you don't get much. <laughs> you don't get much in the first stage. You see, at each stage it gets by. It gets better and better for the participants. So, um, what happens is a company who uh, produced the Prince of Pot documentary, they bought the rights to my story for $2,000. And what they do is they go pitch it to people, largely Americans, I suspect, with money, like even people like Woody Harrelson, like people who are down with the cause who have lots of money to invest in the production of a proper theatrical release. Well, they pitch it to people like him, and they have one year to do this, and then they make a commitment to produce the film, and then they pay money to the production company that that sold it to them that represents me, and then I get, say, $25,000 once the movie starts getting made, and then I get an additional amount when it's completed type of thing as a consultant on the project. So uh, my hope, though, is that they do make a theatrical film. It would be with actors, unlike a documentary that uses uh, real figures and real history. Uh, it, this is for a theatrical release, and that hopefully, you know, my fantasy is that, you know, uh, Johnny Depp or Robert Downey Jr. wants to play me in some way. Now, that's not likely going to happen because those guys charge millions of dollars per film. But, you know, something like Down the Road is possible because Harvey Milk had a wonderful movie made about him that I learned a lot I, about. I suspect, Mark, Mark, that these people that you sold the rights to are sort of hoping that you go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of compelling reasons why going to jail... It, as long as I survive it and, and stay healthy, it is a good thing for the movement, a good thing for probably my personal career, and a good thing for any book or movie written about me. It'll make good because cinema. so many people come to me all the time, and I've, I have had money given to me, and I've had uh, offers to sign my rights to many production companies, but I always tell them the same thing. Like HBO, uh, a guy from who, who works on the show Entourage, contacted me. He says, I'd love to do a show with you or a movie about you. He said, we've made lots of movies, Coach Carter and a couple of other ones. He said, we've made a lot of great films. Radio, he said. And he said, and I think your movie would be great. And I said, yeah, well, here's what your problem's going to be. First of all, I'm not a feel-good story like Radio or Coach Carter and, and that everybody's going to love me. I said, some people won't like me. Some people, when they see me criticizing the U.S. government so vociferously, are not going to feel this is a feel-good story. And I said, and the second thing is you don't have your ending yet. Like, what happens, what's the climax of the movie you'd make? Either I die, 
and pot's legal, or I die and pot's not legal, or I go to jail and sit like the Birdman of Alcatraz, and then pot gets legal. I said, but some kind of climax has to happen that makes this movie uh, uh, dramatic in its ending. And I said, and you don't have that yet, we, so we, you're not going to be able to sell this movie. And every time I've been right, they call me back and say, you're right, we don't <coughs> have the ending yet. So at least if I go to jail... And that won't be the end of the story. If I go to jail, the protests and the demonstrations and the acceleration of our movement will pick up. So I'm not going to be unsatisfied if I did end up in jail because it will propel the movement that I want to go further. Um, but if I didn't get extradited, that would create an interesting dynamic because I'd actually have to be grateful to the conservative government not to extra, for not extraditing me. <laughs> well, you know, so this is that what would be awkward for me to say flattering things to uh, gracious things to the justice minister, which I'd really have to say. Well, Mark, I can't believe it. We're actually out of time. Can you can you imagine that? But uh, listen, best of luck in all of what happens. I hope uh, Paul's Paul's film doesn't spoil your expectations in terms of what would work best for you. Yeah. you know, we're almost wondering maybe we don't want to do this film. But Mark, thank you for joining us today, and we certainly didn't even touch the, the tip. Of the iceberg on this. Paul, the same to you. Thank you. Uh, Robert, by the way, got to tell our, tell our folks, we're not going to be here next week. Special programming on CHRW for Black History Month. We will return in two weeks. And until then, uh, we hope that uh, you, of course, will stick with us and be right, act right, stay right, and make sure that you join us again in a couple of weeks when we're back here. Until then, take care. to black and white under the bedclothes everything will be alright I know what they're like I know what they're like I lived with a stoner they're just lazy I didn't mind him doing the drugs it's you know he was at the panic attacks he'd have I wake up in the morning he's in the kitchen screaming his head off there the grape nuts are blue I'm like oh like Steve you're eating aquarium gravel he's like oh man I thought the bowl was pretty big here what the hell Whoa.